God, we thank you for this important text or this important chapter in Colossians. God, we pray that you would, Lord, meet us right here in this word. God, we want to be changed by it. God, we want to walk out of here with our thinking and our desiring and our living impacted. But we know that the only way for that to happen is for your spirit to do a mighty work in our heart and in our minds. So God, we pray for that today in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, the State of the Bible Survey, which is conducted by the American Bible Society, uh, released their 10th annual survey results. And the results are uh, quite concerning. Uh, The survey results revealed that during the coronavirus season that we've been living in over the last several months, people are reading and listening to the news more. People are uh, doing what they call doom scrolling on social media more. But one thing that people are doing less of is actually reading the Bible. Survey results reveal that from January uh, through June of this year, 13 million people in America who were previously engaged in reading the Scriptures regularly now are no longer. This is a serious drop-off, something that this survey has not seen since they first conducted uh, this survey about 10 years ago. In addition, the Barna Group, a Christian research firm, shared that only 12% of people read the Bible several times a week. This is the lowest number on record. Another interesting data point in this survey revealed that uh, for women who have always kind of led men in Bible engagement, now for the very first time are trailing men in Bible engagement. This could be for lots of reasons. Women are carrying uh, a lot of worry these days trying to figure out school and education from the home or working from the home, and it tends to be squeezing out time in the Word. Look, I share this with you because one of the reasons why we're doing a 30-day Bible reading plan through the book of Luke is to equip you to know what to do when you open up the Bible. It tends to be one of the reasons why people just don't read it. They don't know what to do, where to start, uh, or how to do this. And so uh, we're giving you kind of a a plan to reading the Bible intentionally because uh, something happens when you go months on end without reading God's Word. In fact, a, a crisis like the coronavirus and the dozens of challenges that come with it, they reveal your commitment to the Word of God. They reveal what you believe about this book, what, what you believe about your need for the book. And one of the dangers of going months with kind of having a slim diet of the Word of God is that it easily becomes your regular indefinite diet of the Word, that you kind of get used to the distance of just kind of going day on end without immersing yourself in the Word of God. And that has drastic effects upon your life. Like not only is your soul parched, not only does your spiritual life and your spiritual growth kind of shrivel up, but you become vulnerable to sin. You look more worldly than godly, and your relationships become shallow, and so on and so forth. And so, look, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to dive into Colossians 3 over the next couple of weeks is because one of the things that Paul will challenge us with is in verse 16, where he wants the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And look, we all want that. We all want the Word of God to dwell in us richly, not just to hover over our lives, 
but we want the Word of God to be absolutely centered and immersed in who we are. We don't want to be part of the the 13 million people who have stopped reading God's Word. But here's the challenge. You and I will never allow the Word of Christ to dwell in in us richly unless we first understand verses 1 through 4 in Colossians 3. See, the challenge here is that you and I are unable to do anything in verses 5 through 17 unless we first understand verses 1 through 4 in Colossians 3. You'll be unable to put to death sin, verse 5. You'll be unable to love one another and and put on humility and, and compassion in verse 12. You'll be unable to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts in verse 15 and and the word of Christ to dwell in you richly and so on and so forth unless you understand verses 1 through 4 in Colossians 3. And so today I'm really excited just to kind of lay this foundation for looking at the rest of Colossians 3. And so if we could maybe zoom out a little bit, here's the main idea of what we're going to unpack over the next couple of weeks as we look at this really important chapter, that your position in Christ determines your priorities, it shapes your perspective, and it empowers your practice. Okay, we're going to save the the practice piece for the next couple of weeks. Today, we're going to look at our position, our perspective, and our uh, priorities. Now, what you need to understand about these first four verses in chapter 3 is that this actually marks the beginning of the apex of the Colossian mountain. You probably have noticed this. We've been climbing and climbing and climbing in these first two chapters, and now we are finally at the peak of of Paul's letter to the Colossian believers. See, much of chapter 2, Paul uh, was really just warning the believers of what not to do, right? How we should not think, what we should avoid, Well, now in chapter 3, Paul is going to explain how we should live, what we should do, how we should think. And the focus, and uh, no surprise here, is Christ. It's our union with Jesus. But Paul actually presses it further in this chapter. We've talked a lot about our identity in Christ, haven't we? We've talked a lot about our union with Jesus. But in this chapter, Paul starts to connect the dots and provide these helpful links of how our union with Christ actually impacts how we live. And Paul's going to get really specific here. In fact, really nowhere else in Paul's writings, I would put chapter 3 right up there with any other text in Paul's letters in providing the level of detail for practical living. And Paul's really just picking up where he left off in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He's, he's just expounding on what it means to be rooted and built up and grounded in Christ. So Paul wants to get to the practice. He wants to get to our ethics, our morality. But before he does, he wants to talk about our position, our perspective, and our priorities. Let's look at the first one here. First, let's look at our resurrected position in Christ Jesus. Our passage begins, you probably noticed this, with a conditional phrase using the word if. This is a very, very common conditional sentence in the New Testament where the theology contained in the if clause actually provides the basis for the exhortation in the then clause. Okay, so for Paul, and we see this all over his writings, Paul assumes 
that what is contained in the if clause is true. So what Paul is declaring here is that if you are a believer in Jesus, you have been spiritually resurrected in Christ, that you are no longer dead in your sins, you are no longer an enemy of God, you are no longer unable to respond to God, but because of what Jesus has done in your life, you are now raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenlies. Paul says almost the exact same thing in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 6. And look, this is classic Paul here. This is classic Pauline theology that before he gets to the imperatives or the commands that you should be doing, Paul wants to lay a foundation of indicatives or truths of what God has done. And Paul keeps talking about this resurrection that God has done in your life if you're a believer because it provides the power in order to do these commands. That Paul wants us to not get over this great miracle that God has performed in your life by opening up your blind eyes, giving you faith to believe, turning from sin, and now living in Christ. This provides the foundation in order to do verses 5 through 17. And I love this about Paul. This is maybe one of my favorite aspects about Paul. His go-to in almost every letter is to remind the believer that you have two locations. That you have location number one, which is kind of your your practical location or your physical location, which is wherever you are today in 2020, northeast side of, of Indianapolis, that's, that's your position. But then there's a second location that Paul reminds us of, and that's our positional location in Christ, our spiritual position in Jesus, which is seated at the right hand of the Father, hidden in Christ in the heavenlies, that we are righteous, we are holy, we are accepted, and we are uh, unconditionally loved. That's who we are in Christ. Now, Paul is so concerned with the Colossian believers here because they have forgotten their identity and who they are in Jesus. And that's opened themselves up to being swept away by the false teaching. And so everywhere we've turned, Paul is reminding them of who they are in Jesus, their positional location in Christ. Even when we get to our passage here, these first four verses, Paul has a lot to say about this positional location in Christ, that we have died with Christ, verse 3, that we have been raised with Christ, verse 1, that we are hidden with Christ in verse 3, and that we will appear with Christ in glory, verse 4. That's our positional location in Jesus. Now, why is Paul emphasizing this? Why do we hear so much about our identity in Jesus. It's because growth in the Christian life is the process by which we close the gap between our positional location in Jesus and our practical location in the here and now. And if you don't know who you are in Jesus, it's impossible to live out who you are in Jesus in the here and now. So Paul keeps reminding us of who you really are in Jesus so that you can live out in that reality, that you are holy, that you are righteous, that you are accepted because of Jesus. So live like it. It's the whole point of Colossians chapter 3. Now, 
personally, I think one of the primary reasons why people stop growing in the Christian life, one of the primary reasons why people are unable to put to death sin in verse 5 and put on love and so on and so forth, is because so often they live by sight and not by faith. Let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean by that is throughout the Bible, we are commanded to live by faith, not by sight, like 2 Corinthians 5, 7, because what you see physically it is your, your practical position in the here and now. What you see, what I see is that I'm a sinner. What I see is that Chris feels it's so easy to be filled up with fear and guilt and shame. It's so easy for me to live by sight because what I see is that I lack strength. I lack wisdom. I lack the spiritual resources that I need to live out my positional reality in Christ. And so we are commanded to live by faith because living by faith is actually living out who you are in Jesus, which you are hidden in Christ, that you've died to sin. You've been raised up with Christ. You are seated at the right hand of the Father, hidden in Jesus in the heavenlies. That's who you are. And so we need to live by faith because we don't see that. And so we need to trust in what God's word has to say about who we actually are so we can close the gap between these two locations. And so Paul is, again, just laying this foundation of our position in Christ because that's the target and that's also the motivation. So we've talked a lot about our position in Christ. Well, this informs our priorities, which is the second thing I want us to see this morning, that who we are in Jesus determines and shapes what we believe to be most important. That's why the second half of verse 1, Paul says, in essence, because of your position in Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, this word seek in our context has an important nuance to it. Paul is not saying that believers should seek in order to possess the things that are above, but Paul is using this word seek for the believers to orient themselves around the things that are above. So seek here meaning orientation, not possession, and there's a huge difference between the two. Let me give you an example. Uh, for example, when I'm playing hide-and-go-seek with my, with my kids, and I'm the seeker, I'm the counter, and I count to 10 or uh, you know, maybe 50 or whatever it is, when I'm done counting and they're hiding uh, all over the house, I'm making it my priority, my aim is to go and locate them, right? Like I'm not losing hide-and-go-seek to my kids, I'm going after them, right? But I'm seeking them not to possess them as my kids because they already are, no, I'm seeking them by orienting my life around finding them. I'm directing my life. I'm pointing my life in order to find them exactly where they are. That's how Paul is using this word seek. It's not seek to possess, seek to orient yourself. Because for Paul here, you already have your heavenly status. That's not something you need to possess. It's already been given to you in Jesus and so we use our heavenly status as a guidepost to inform our thinking, our acting, and our priorities. I actually like how the NIV translates this. It says, to set your hearts on things 
above. And the tense of this is is really important. It's actually in the, the present tense, which means this orientation of our priorities is something we are to be occupied with continually. This isn't just a one-time thing. This isn't a a glancing at the things that are above, which we're so good at. It's not this once a day seeking the things that are above or once a week on Sunday mornings. No, it's a continual setting of our hearts so that our priorities are shaped by things that are above. This is really just a call uh, to live out Matthew 6, 33, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is a command about your priorities. This is a command about what you are setting your hearts on. It's directing the posture of your life towards eternal priorities. Look, the reason why this is important is because we give our lives to what we prioritize. What we believe is most important, that's what shapes us. That's what gets our time and our energy and our affections and our resources. And so living with an eternal priority is one way that we live out practically who we are in Jesus. But let me drill down a little bit this morning. What what are the things that are above? What is Paul talking about here? What, What should be the eternal priority of our life? Well, the things above could refer to a lot of different things here. It could refer to the kingdom of God, could refer to God's attributes, could refer to God's unfailing word. All of those are good things to seek, to set our hearts upon. But looking at the immediate context of what Paul has been talking about, there's something very specific that Paul has in mind. What Paul has in mind for us to set our hearts upon is Christ's exalted position in the heavenlies. That what he wants our hearts to be immersed with is Jesus's kingly rule and authority. That's why he qualifies this statement by saying, look, this is exactly where Jesus is. He's seated at the right hand of God. Notice in these first four verses, he's referenced Jesus five different times. That Paul specifically wants our hearts to be set upon Jesus because that's where growth takes place. And yet what this means practically is not that you and I walk around 24-7 in a spiritual trance thinking about King Jesus, right? If that's you, I don't want to be on the same road driving a car with you. This isn't a 24-7 spiritually daydreaming about Jesus' supremacy. No, it's taking the reality that Jesus is king, and it's applying it to how you determine your priorities. It's taking the reality that Jesus, who is our good shepherd, who is sitting on the throne with all rule, all authority, and all power, and understanding how that should impact your worries and your concerns and your burdens. That when you turn on the news, when you scroll through social media, when you process what schooling and education looks like for your kids, when you process the stress of work and the stress of your finances and all of the unknowns of life right now, what does setting your heart on King Jesus do to those burdens? Look, could there be anything that's more important 
and more helpful than setting our hearts on the reality that Jesus and Jesus alone is in control, that Jesus and Jesus alone has unlimited power, that Jesus and Jesus alone is sovereign over all things and yet cares about you personally and intimately. Look, there's nothing from the White House. There's no mandate from the governor. There's no new vaccine there's no news from the school systems or your job or, or, or the doctor that can diminish one ounce of Jesus' kingly rule and authority and power over the universe. That Jesus is supreme, that Jesus' preeminence cannot be touched by the things of this world. So look, you may know that theologically today, but does your heart know that? Are you setting your heart upon the reality that Jesus is king and he has no weakness in him at all? Look, that's the challenge for us. That's what Paul is driving at. What is your heart being set upon? Is it Jesus' lordship? Is it the fact that, look, he has unlimited power and there's nothing that can touch him? And Paul's trying to help us by allowing that reality to drive and determine our priorities. And look, if you're like me this morning, it is so easy to allow the, the, the tyranny of the urgent to take over. It's so easy for, for urgent things, not eternal things, to become my priority. It's so easy for good things, fun things, seemingly harmless things, but not eternal things to shape my priorities. And this is tricky too, because you can claim the name of Jesus and your priorities don't really match the things of eternity. So let me, let me just give you a few symptoms this morning of misplaced priorities in your life. Here, here's how you know that you might theologically believe that Jesus is king, but maybe in your heart it's not being set upon him. Here's symptom number one, is that there's a common theme of prayerlessness in your life. Prayerlessness. Look, if your heart is not being set upon the fact that Jesus is king, you're just not going to talk to him, right? If you don't believe, if your heart isn't convinced that Jesus is sovereign and all-powerful, why pray? And so if you notice that there's a leakage in kind of your devotional life, you're not sitting at the feet of the Lord, just allowing him to determine and shape your priorities, that's a good sign that you have misplaced priorities. Secondly here, if you're noticing a behavior of escapism in your life, if your heart's not being set upon King Jesus and he's not informing your priorities, you're looking for escape routes through sin, that the pressure and the guilt of life, the, the shame of life, all of the responsibilities, you just want a, a quick escape. So if you're noticing this in the form of, of pornography or alcohol abuse or greed, or, or covetousness, or, or just uh, kind of vegging out on entertainment, so many other things, then, then that's revealing misplaced priorities. Thirdly here, another uh, sign or symptom is just uh, living a life of cohabitation with sin, right? And, and for us, look, we're always going to be in a battle with the presence of sin. You should always be waging war. But if you get to that place where you're just coexisting with sin, you're just kind of coping with the reality of sin in your life, you just stopped waging war. That's a sign that you have misplaced priorities. And you might hear it this way, where you just say, I'm just an anxious person. 
I'm just a, an angry person. I'm just a lustful person. And, and you just learn to kind of coexist with that sin instead of battling it and waging war against it. And then another one here, I'll, I'll close with this fourth one, is an inconsistent commitment to church and God's people. Look, I want to say on the front end here how difficult this has been over the last couple of months trying to figure out what does it look like to engage with church? What does it look like to be committed to the church and God's people with the coronavirus? Man, this has been challenging. But whether you're engaging with us in person or online or part of a small group or a Bible study, if you're noticing that you're making excuses to disengage, then that's a sign that you've got misplaced priorities. Because believing and setting your heart on the fact that Jesus is king will impact your relationship with his bride. And so look, if you find yourself saying more, yeah, I I can't go to church or I can't watch church or go to small group because of this, that, or the other, if you're saying that more, then yeah, I can't do that thing or that activity because I'm going to church or because I'm watching church or because I'm in a small group, then that might reveal some misplaced priorities. Look, there are many more, but the point being here is that if you're not living with an eternal priority of seeking the things that are above, there's no way you're going to live out verses 5 through 17. Look, I want to encourage this morning, though, if you're struggling with some of these things, look, every morning, the mercies of God are new. Every morning, you have an opportunity to recalibrate your heart and your mind and centering yourself around the priorities of God, and he will meet you there every morning, reminding who, yourself of who you are in Jesus and allowing that to shape your priorities. All right, here's the last thing that we'll talk about this morning is a heavenly perspective. We talked about the position, and we've talked about priorities. Let's talk about how we are thinking and what our perspective should be. Look at verse 2 with me. Paul says to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Look, Paul's point, just very simply, is that our mindset and our thinking should reflect our identity in Christ. Look, Paul has laid this out in other writings. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Look, do you see it there? Paul's saying the way that you live, the, the way that uh, you conduct yourself, your actions are based upon what your mind is set upon, what your perspective is. And so is it on the things of God or is it on the flesh? Is it heavenly or is it worldly? You probably have heard that popular phrase before that the problem is, is that we're so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. Look, if you're like me, that's probably not a concern in your life. The concern is probably the opposite. I'm so earthly minded that I'm no heavenly good, right? So Paul's point here is to have a heavenly perspective, one that is shaped by your heavenly position in Christ. I love this word set in verse 2. It suggests a habit of the mind, right? The NET translates this as keep thinking about things above, not on things of the earth. Again, Paul wants our minds and our thinking to be shaped by our position in Christ, to have this biblical filter about how we process and think about things. 
But this also, I think, has a challenge here of what our minds are dwelling upon too. Not just how you think, which we've talked about in weeks past, but what your mind is actually being saturated with. This reminds me of the list that Paul provides in Philippians chapter 4. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Look, why? Because what we set our minds on determines our, see- our seeking, which impacts our practice and how we live our lives. I know I've gone over my time here, but I just want to be helpful this morning. Let me close this morning by giving you three ways of how to do this, three ways to help shape your perspective around your heavenly position in Christ. Here's the first one, is to impress the word onto your heart and your mind. I just want to challenge you this morning again, just like in the intro, to read the Bible, but not only read it, read it slowly. Read it meditatively. Read it in a way that challenges your thinking so that your mindset is actually being shaped by the word. I'm always shocked and surprised by how quickly some people read the Bible, two minutes, and they're on to the next thing, and they're not giving a chance for the word of God to shape how they think should be reading it and asking the question, what needs to change about my thinking because this is true? It should be a regular question that you are asking. Secondly here, guard your mind from unbiblical and ungodly persuasion. Look, it's a good thing. I think it's healthy to read differing viewpoints, but to do so critically. Right? Be on guard to not allow unbiblical ideologies to shape your mindsets. Be on guard as you're learning and growing and, and trying to understand differing viewpoints to not be persuaded by them. I think this is what Paul means when he gives us the advice in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what Paul means by not, not seeking the things that are on the earth with your mind, but take every thought captive. For a battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle that's won or lost in your mind. And so look, be on guard with what you're thinking, what you're absorbing. Ask the question, what does the Bible say about this? And then the last thing here is to take a break from social media, from the news, from the entertainment world for a period of time. Like I'm not saying give up these things indefinitely, although maybe, maybe we should, <laughs> but I'm saying to understand that these things, these outlets have an impact on how we think and, and what we're allowing our minds to absorb. I, I don't know about you, but when I've given up these things, I, I did an 18-month fast from social media, and my soul just felt less cluttered. Like the fog in my mind was just kind of moved out of the way, just immersing my mind in truth. And so I just want to challenge you this morning to fast from them from a period of time and just see what happens. See how your mind could be shaped by things above. 
Look, of course, there are many other ways to develop a heavenly perspective, but this, this kind of foundation that Paul lays for us of understanding our position in Christ is to get to verses 5 and 17. This is the power, this is the motivation to changing and to living out. It's grounded in the gospel. Paul is saying you have died in Christ. You have been raised in Christ. You are hidden with Christ. You are seated in the heavenlies. And so Paul then says, Christ is your life that your life is not your own. You don't belong to the things of this world. You belong to Jesus. So do your priorities, does your perspective scream out, Jesus is my life. That's our hope and that's our prayer. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the challenge of this passage. We thank you for how helpful this is. God, we want to be a people that are shaped by our identity in Jesus We don't just want to look at who we are in Christ as a nice thing, but we want that to impact what we believe is most important and how we think about things in this world. So God, would you give us wisdom? Would you help us to do that? Would you, Lord, give us a, Lord, just, um, Lord, a desire and a discipline every day to live out who we are in Jesus? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.